there is no real line for me anymore about when someone's hypnotized and when someone's not the defining and only characteristic of hypnosis is this is where you lay on the on the on the spectrum with a sense of control one end and a sense of no control on the other end Mysterious World, with your host, Stuart Palm. Join us as we connect across time and space, exploring the mysteries of our world and your world. Welcome back to the Mysterious World, or welcome to the Mysterious World if it's your first time listening. I am Stuart Palm, and uh, today I have a wonderful uh, interview with Anthony Jacquin. It seems that this podcast has, uh, for the time being, turned into a way for me to record and share uh, the mentors that I've had uh, to become the person I am today. And, and Anthony is one of those mentors. He is an instructor of hypnotherapy. He um, teaches with his father at the United K- Kingdom uh, Hypnotherapy Training College. Uh, and he's also the author of a few books and DVD sets on uh, teaching hypnosis and uh, part of the group of head hackers who uh, explore um, the way people are affected and um, can be uh, it's it's a it's an exploration of hypnosis, but they go beyond uh, just hypnosis and hypnotherapy. And I'm going to do another interview with Anthony uh, in the future, actually, on that subject in particular. Uh, he wrote "Reality Is Plastic" is probably what he's most uh, well known for, but he also wrote another book called "The Trilby Connection" and a, a DVD set called "The Manchurian Approach." All of these things um, having to do with different ways of thinking about hypnotherapy and hypnosis. Uh, aside from his hypnotherapy uh, business, these are sort of passion project projects of his. He's an inspiring guy. He's an interesting guy. He has a lot of knowledge on the subject, and uh, we are blessed to have his uh, his thoughts on this interview. This interview is great. It goes right into some deep stuff, so you're going to have to put on your uh, thinking caps and your helmets of hypnotherapy for, for, for the beginning of this, because he goes right into some very great, um, deeply considered definitions of what hypnotherapy and hypnosis are and how they affect us. And that is sort of the train that this follows uh, for two hours, <clears throat> giving us a, a very rounded view and uh, thinking on the current uh, knowledge we have about hypnosis. I've studied with a few different people um, over the years, and um, it is ever evolving, and there's always more to learn about what hypnosis is and can be. Um, 
I have my own diploma with uh, Anthony Jackwin's hypnotherapy training college. And um, if someone is looking for that kind of uh, in-depth experience, his training is fantastic. Um, if you're looking for a lighter um, opener into this world, I highly recommend Reality is Plastic. Uh, you can go to anthonyjackwin.com, spelled A-N-T-H-O-N-Y-J-A-C-Q-U-I-N. Again, Anthony, A-N-T-H-O-N-Y, Jacqueline, J-A-C-Q-U-I-N.com, and uh, you'll go to his, that's his hypnotherapy um, introduction page and uh, tells you all about him. It is currently January 26th today. It's my sister's birthday, so happy birthday, Mason. I don't know if she listens to my podcast, but if she does, uh, won't that be nice? Uh, my birthday was just on the 21st, and uh, it's a very fun time in the world, I think, right now, because uh, winter has come, as um, the Game of Thrones enthusiasts keep pointing out on Facebook. It's amazing to me how just about a month ago, everyone was complaining that it was too warm for summer. What's going on? It's too warm. And now they're having a blizzard or it's uh, the coldest day. In fact, uh, we had the coldest day in 60 years in Hong Kong the other day. It got to zero uh, Celsius in parts. Um, and uh, so that's been interesting. I've been using heaters. It's a strange place, Hong Kong, in that none of the city well, very, very little of the city has built-in heating. So everything is a space heater because it's just warm here. It's a subtropical climate. You don't really need uh, heat that often. But uh, as soon as it hits, we're all scrambling for overcoats and ways to be warm as we go out. I enjoy the sense of cold. I, I've lived most of my life in uh, tropical climates. I grew up in Florida and I now live in Hong Kong. Uh, but I did live in New York for a period of time. And I, I, there's something about uh, cold days that are just, there's a feel that's different. There's a different magic to it. Uh, just like there's a different magic to a good storm. I, I like a good storm. So the variety is uh, nice to have. And it's good to have a short period of cold weather. Although when they get long, I am happy to be living in Hong Kong because it doesn't last so much here. Look at me. I'm talking about the weather. If you are in Hong Kong and are interested in more uh, knowledge about hypnosis and hypnotherapy, you can go to my website, H hypnotist.com and find about my own personal practice of hypnotherapy. You can also join the meetup of um, uh, Mysterious World. This podcast, we now have a meetup. And uh, in fact, today, the 26th of January, is our first live talk uh, that we are holding. And you can come and uh, to those. Uh, this won't be up, I don't think, fast enough for you to hear it and then come to the one today. But uh, I'm going to record it as much as I can and then probably put a little bit of it in the next podcast. Uh, today, we have a uh, talk given by TJ Henrietta, who is a, um, a firewalk instructor. She leads people through the experience of firewalks, which I'm going to do this Sunday. And um, I'm going to be involved presenting some uh, hypnosis and um, other things to the people who join us that. And we'll be doing more of those in the future. And she also is going to give a talk a bit on the law of attraction. And I will have her on to speak on that uh, soon. 
And so you can look forward to that. There's a few other people lined up for interviews in the future. Although the first couple of weeks of February, I will be in the United States, so I will not be uh, recording podcasts. So there will be a little blank space. If I can get one more in this week, I'll do that and then release it next week. But um, I apologize if that doesn't happen because it's quite a busy time. I hope all is doing well in your world, um, wherever you may be in the world. I thank you deeply for your listening to this podcast, and I don't want to waste your time. So we're going to jump now right into the interview with Anthony Jackwin. started the last uh, podcast asking John Stetson what uh, mentalism is. So um, what is hypnosis? <laughs> I was just drawing breath because uh, I'd love to be able to sum this up in a sentence and a bit like those interested in Gedelian mathematics which my good friend Jesse Cummins has introduced me to, there can be different answers, perhaps depending on who is asking the question. Right. There's obviously this lack of consensus um, amongst experts. And over the last 20 years, my views on this have changed uh, frequently. But in the last where are we, 2016, in the last four or five years, they've settled and they've settled really for the first time. So although I don't say this when I'm working table to table on a stage, I believe hypnosis is a social construct that causes the cognitive processes of automatic imagination. I'll clarify what I mean by that in a moment hypnotic responses so for something to be defined as hypnotic the response would need to have an accompanying sensation of automaticity or involuntariness in other words my job is to turn a doing into a happening so if you want to have a more practical uh, uh, definition. I, I love but, that definition, but I think uh, probably 98% of anyone who ever listens to this is probably going to need something else. Can we start again? <laughs> <laughs> here no, we go. No, it's okay, but it's um, very heavy. The, here, here we go. The hypnotist presents suggestions to the subject. And the subject experiences the effect of those suggestions with a sense of involuntariness. So, again, I bring it down to this. My job is to turn a doing into a happening. When I'm hypnotizing, I present instructions to do things. Some of those, you know, are just mechanical instructions. Put your hands out in front of you. I present instructions to imagine 
things. Imagine there's magnets on the palms of the hands. And I present suggestions. And despite the fact that everyone uses this word, suggestion, implying it's kind of a special use of the word when we're talking about hypnosis, um, I find it often lacks definition. For me, for something to qualify as a suggestion, it will contain a cue that will prompt this feeling that things are happening by themselves or because of some outside agency, um, the hypnotist or the process or whatever. So, again, a suggestion can sound very similar to an instruction. But the reason I kind of keep harping on about this is because it is the one, and as far as I can tell, the only thing that unites all the different theories of hypnosis. Hmm. It's the one thing that, you know, state-based theorists and social theorists can agree upon. And, and, and you know, I misunderstood the, the social behavioral view of hypnosis for a long time because I kind of only really looked at the extreme end of it, which essentially suggested the subject is just pretending or just playing along. And then I started to realize that, you know, just shy of that are kind of psychological theories about role play, which still sounded a bit like playing along. So I kind of ignored those as well for maybe 15 years. Um, but it's it's much more subtle than that. And it's uh, more, more kind of sophisticated than than someone just playing along. It's really based on the idea that we all have roles and we step into these roles and, and transform from one to another just when someone else steps into a room that changes the dynamic. So yeah. that, that, that kind of um, started to get me interested in that point of view again and the lack of evidence for the, for the state-based position, you know, and, and, and my own experience that all of the kind of pillars that I thought supported hypnosis turned out to be non-essential. It doesn't mean that I wouldn't use them or, or, or structure things in a certain way. Right. But when we, re- when we really started to kind of try to boil it down and, and, and reduce it down to what, what is essential. It's just magic. It's just magic. It's just magic. <laughs> Yeah, um, no, I hear you. And and the more I learn, and I'm uh, extremely new to hypnosis compared to uh, your knowledge. Um, but 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 the more I, the more people I work with, the more everything I've learned uh, gets tested. These yeah. simple things when people ask you like. Um, can I, uh, am I going to do something that I don't want to do under hypnosis that, that, that you're trained? I mean, I, the, all the earlier books and things that I've read say, no, you won't do anything that you're not. But, but, uh, I don't, I question that now. <laughs> I question whether that's true. And, and Whoa. the, the, the thing, um, that that if you don't want to be hypnotized, you can't be hypnotized. I, I don't think that's true anymore either, because I have had people who say, I don't want to be hypnotized. And then they start to go in trance and they they didn't, you know, they didn't mean to do that. 
Yeah, and you know this this sense of control that that those questions suggest people are clinging to. Mm. It just isn't there in their normal life anyway. Right. I mean, it's it. You know, can can you can you just choose happy thoughts? Can you can you turn reactions on and off with with the power of thought? Well, most people can't. You know, they can't silence their minds. They can't stop feelings arriving predictably in in certain situations, um, or, or or at least without you know some some method and some insight into how they might do that. I, I, so, I respond with a similar thought when people ask me the question uh, when I'm performing mentalism, uh, when they say, oh, mind reader, what am I thinking now? I, I kind of do the same thing you're talking about and throw it back to them and say, do you know what you're thinking right now? I bet you don't <laughs> because it's so yeah. many things going on in your head, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, one of my – that. That's become one of very similar to one of my favourite lines um, when I'm attempting to kind of undermine this this sense of control. It's just that you know. Do you know what you were thinking this time yesterday? Mm. There's normally a bit of a pause. Occasionally, someone will say, "I'm having my dinner," but if they if they seriously consider it, obviously they say no. And you can say, "What about two and a half minutes ago? Do you know the thoughts that were in your head then?" No, and then I look at them and say. Do you know what you'll be thinking three thoughts from now, hmm. even one thought from now? You know, what is it that what is it that convinces you you are thinking? <laughs> and it has, the, it has the same kind of effect because, you know, when you when you really start to examine the nature of your personal reality. And that's really where, you know, my attention is now. It's kind of if you if you spend enough time, you know, you know, I'm a therapist, too. But if you spend yeah. enough time just having fun with hypnosis, let alone someone coming in with a what seemed like a very reliable and stable problem and that problem, um, you know, disappearing and just dissolving, then at some point you have to start to question, well, what's that personal reality made of and then eventually you have to kind of shine that light back on yourself right and you know there isn't just there, there, there just isn't that much that that we really know um when when you start to do that so i know this show you know is about mystery and um one of the things i love about hypnosis even now even even you know, in the 21st century with everything that we do know and all the study that has been done is that it's one of the few things you can just say the word and we're immediately in the land of mystery and people will start to express opinions and, and, and express those opinions in terms of their belief. Exactly. You know, I had a guy the other day who was, you know, he's into his science and he, and he considers himself to be a, a critical thinker. And the first thing he said was, I don't believe in that. It's not really a, it's not really a belief question. You know, right. you know, his belief isn't required and there's, um, there's plenty of good science into the nature of it, as well as the applications of it. It's not really about belief, but when you start to, you know, if you, if you want to try and understand it by looking to history, mm -hmm. 
It actually reminds me of one of my favourite quotes, actually. Um, I'm sure you've heard of Joseph Campbell and perhaps read some. But one of my favourites is his book on primitive mythology, which I'd never really kind of considered until I kind of developed an interest in, uh, you know, the origins of, of all things shamanic. And that's kind of a place you have to go. Right. And he's... You know, looking back over... Are, are we talking of a, about a hero with a thousand faces, or are we talking about no, a different I, I, book? No, he, he has uh, a set of four books. Mm-hmm. Um, one's, the first one's called Primitive Mythology. Okay, And yes. then Ancient and Occidental and Oriental. But, right. um, you know, Primitive Mythology, essentially he's looking back over the best part of 40,000 years. He's really looking to the, the you know, the very first pot we've ever found and the very yeah. first enter art and those early cave you know the cave art from sort of 16 to twenty five thousand years ago and he sets out the task ahead of him for the for the benefit of his reader and he actually uh quotes thomas mann from from something called joseph and his brothers but this is the quote he says very deep is the well of the past should we not call it bottomless no matter to what hazardous lengths we let out our line, they still withdraw again and further into the depths. Now, to get to the roots of hypnotism prior to Mesmer, mm-hmm. we face a similar proposition because given that we're, you know, all, all we've got are like, thin cracks of light in the darkness of of history when we start to peer into those gaps when we try and trace the roots that you know despite Mesmer's views about energy and everything else when you start to trace the roots of what he was doing yeah as far as i can tell they run as deep as the birth of human civilization they certainly run straight through the development of art, yeah. science, healthcare, psychology. Pretty much every major luminary in psychology in the last 150 years had an interest in hypnosis. It was just too fascinating to, to, to ignore. And again, it kind of remains that way. And yet the average psychology student today will have a few paragraphs in a book and maybe one it will be mentioned in one lesson in a degree program. Well, how much of that do you think has to do with the fact that Freud wasn't very good as a hypnotist? Um, yeah, well, that's the story. That's kind of the story I tell. Right. Um, but that's, you know, and I'm, I'm not a, a big fan of Freud, although I think it needs kind of re-exploring. It's become he's become very unfashionable because of, you know, some of his views and ideas and it was kind of an unhealthy. Sure. In, in a, in a, in a one, in one perspective, I agree. If you lo- open a, a textbook on um, psychoanalysis or uh, psychotherapy these days, they give you a little bit on Freud and then kind of tell you, eh, we've disproved all of his thoughts. Yet, yeah. Yeah. In the greater consciousness of of humanity, he is still an archetype of 
psychoanalysis. And I don't think that's going to go away, just like Houdini is a stage magician archetype and and uh, no. Einstein's an archetype for a genius. But even though people don't understand any of the nuances, those are going to stand. Yeah, and the, the, the fascinating thing about the, the, the Freudian story in hypnosis is that this, this famous event where, you know, um, well, I'll just, I'll come to first of all how, how he seemed to use hypnosis. Sure. And he seems, it's sim- the, a very, very simple technique of hypnotizing someone, taking them back to the initial sensitizing event where they would experience that often in quite a stressful kind of cathartic manner. And then he would say, in a moment, I'm going to clap my hands and you will wake up and you'll remember everything about that event. You know, seemingly from your new perspective, that right. was his. That was his technique, and it, you know, again, I'm not a big fan of, of kind of memory recovery. But the fact is, many, many, many professional hypnotherapists, even now, still use essentially that technique as the backbone of their system. They may be slightly more sensitive in the way they wield it and encourage some dissociation and, and things like that, but. Ultimately, if you're using a timeline or, or, or any kind of metaphor to get someone back to the initial event, uh, you know, and certainly in the US, people really still swear by this as being the crown jewel of techniques. I think Elman put it that way. Yeah. Um, and if he didn't, and Larry Elman is listening, I'm sorry, but someone kind of quoted that recently. Dave uh, Elman? Uh, the, oh, Larry yeah, Elman is his grandson or his son? Larry Elman's his son, um, but yeah. he's quite on the scene at the moment, and I, I wouldn't want to misquote his father. Yes. But I know that people who have come through the kind of Elman, Gil Boyne lineage, which yes. is many therapists because they were so prolific in, you know, for, for, for a couple of decades, um, that often that seems to be the backbone of their system. Now, the 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 story that um, some people may have heard about Freud is that one day he was hypnotizing. I think it's a, you know one of his well-to-do friends' daughters or nieces. Yep. Uh, um, it's one of the most famous cases. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the session, she suddenly jumps up and kisses Freud on the lips, just as his secretary or assistant walks in the room. It sounds highly dubious to me. Right? <laughs> but, but, but the point is, in that moment, Freud, the hypnosis ends for Freud and psychoanalysis is born because in that moment, the justification or the reason he found for her doing that was that she experienced transference. Um, and if you know, if people aren't familiar with this concept of transference, um, most most psychotherapy trainings encourage you to avoid transference. The idea of the the client kind of projecting characteristics of of another significant other onto you. But in fact, that is very much the backbone of psychoanalysis. You 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 encourage transference. You become. Right you know, those, those people. So, um, at one swipe, it seems Freud drops hypnosis from his practice and starts to look at fantasy being, you know, the, 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 the driver. In a kiss. Um, it, it, yeah. Yeah. Which, I, you know, I can't for- think of, um, many better <laughs> ways for something to be done. <laughs> uh, but, 
what I've never kind of dug into is is someone said to me recently that that Freud continued to write and theorize about hypnosis even after that. So mm. I, I probably need to dig a little deeper into his writing. And, yeah, I do uh, too. I, I don't. I don't know the 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 smaller details on those matters. I've heard the story of the kiss uh, before, and uh, I've always found it interesting how psychoanalysis comes from Freud's thinking yeah. and reaction yeah. to hypnosis, and a lot of people don't know that, and. Um, I find it interesting that people do often start the conversation of their knowledge on hypnosis um, with a framing of a of a a historical timeline and a, and a you know going back through your experiences and they just expect that that's going to be part of the experience, whereas. Yeah. Um, I've learned a lot from you quite a lot, actually, uh, that, that that's, you know, that there's other yeah. ways that are exactly. possibly it's just more not, effective. Yeah, it's just not necessary. I mean, I, I can't, you know, what, what the science suggests now is that is that that style of therapy is just not good therapy because of the, the, the potential problems it brings. And by that, I mean kind of making memory recovery the... sure background of the system. However, I can't, I can't deny from my own practice, um, that there, it does seem that, 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 that provides a transformational moment for some. Yeah. Uh, and it's delicate. You've not, got to know where to use it. Yeah. And, and not that remembering is necessarily enough and, and, you know, the reframing of the past, the looking at it again from an adult perspective seems to perhaps add something to it. But for me, I've got to say it still remains um, a secondary or tertiary technique. It's more of an emergency technique for me. Um, well, a lot of also- people don't realize – every time I've told somebody this, it's been like the first time they've heard it, uh, which is that a memory is – a experience of the last time you remembered that thing. So a memory from deep childhood, if you've never recalled that memory before, then maybe it's a fresh memory of the original initial experience. But if it's something that you've recalled many times, it's only the recall of the last time. So if you think of a, a game of uh, telephone or <laughs> or Chinese whispers, yeah. as you guys call it, um, yes. Uh, it's similar to that and it's going to be different and but you're going to believe that it's real and that's exactly the the problem with memory recovery and therapy is right. that the accompanying feeling is i have just you know reached in and, and picked that up or it's just emerged therefore i have remembered it but you have remembered it yes you've stuck it back together you're ignoring the sellotape you know it's Every time you remember something, you are getting further from it. Exactly. The only pure memory is the one you haven't remembered. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and it's interesting to me that because hypnosis as a idea is so um, defined in most people's minds by what they've seen in the media and in television and movies, how often they use a hypnotist recalling a memory as some sort of process involved with the police for proving something. 
which is so far from what I would believe would be the truth. Yes, I mean, it it brings us back. It it brings us kind of deeper into this question about about memory and how we can use that stuff. And 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 you you know, as you know, even even in the the world of magic and mentalism, sure. you can use techniques to change people's memory of an effect, change their recall of an effect. You can kind of train people to, you know, the first two times they saw the coin, the third time they didn't, but they still believe it's there. You can, you can use stuff right in the moment uh, to, to, to play with people's memory. Exactly. But in terms of, in terms of kind of, um, you know, useful memory recovery for the sake of say, uh, getting details, about an event or finding something. I mean, they're two different examples, I guess. Um, again, I, I, again, I think it can happen. Not that, not that hypnotism gives you a better memory. The science is very clear on that, but it allows you to seemingly dig up more material. It doesn't mean it's all inaccurate. It's all certainly a an automatic creative act in that moment. But I think hypnosis provides a context and if you like a good strategy mm-hmm. for remembering. So when I've kind of done stuff to help people find lost objects, um, lost keys, hidden cash, stuff like that. Yeah. It's very often been successful. Yeah. And sure. This person has been looking for hours for the keys or they've been looking for weeks or months for, for something they've stashed somewhere. Now, if you like, their strategy for remembering before they come in is, where's the keys? I can't find the keys. I've looked everywhere for the keys. I'm going crazy. I know I bought the keys here. Where are the keys? Which is a bad strategy for remembering. Exactly. If, you know, if, if, And the same is you could extend it to pain. You know, oh, I'm in pain. It's agony. You don't know how bad it is. You know, this is this is not getting any better. It's only going to get worse. You know, da-da. this is a, this is a bad strategy for pain control. Whereas if you sit someone down and you encourage them to stop trying to remember and to get out of their day and to drift along a timeline and to note when they woke up that morning and to imagine walking, you know, and you prescribe other strategies, then, then my experience is more often than not, they just have this aha moment where it's like, oh, oh God, you know, it's in the socks under the floorboards or, you know, it's it's in the linen bin. I, I got changed when I came in, you know. Yeah. And I've, I've seen that happen. It's such a beautiful moment when it happens. Um, one of my favourites actually was – I was out with a bunch of hypnotists in a, actually an English pub in Paris where I used to work many years ago uh, called the Frog and Roast Beef. And um, <laughs> the, one of the managers there, like we often go in there and, and do our thing. And, and she was she didn't mind magic, but she was never interested in hypnosis and kind of kept, kept us at arm's length on that front. And we had been in there for a few hours and she came up to me near the end of the night upset she's lost the keys and she's supposed to be locking up she knows she had them because she arrived with them and undid a certain door and so on you know and it was it was exactly that i've looked everywhere i can't find them i can't find them so i sat her down and kind of went into you know my normal stick which was kind of an arm levitation Mm -hmm. moving up toward her head 
Mm-hmm. And I basically stuck my neck out a little and said, and when your hand touches your head, you will just get up, walk in the pub and, you know, grab the keys. So as the arm was lifting, I was just kind of waffling on, you know, you, you, you know, all the places it isn't and blah, 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 blah. And just, just, just kind of talking. And then a friend of, we were sitting outside and a friend of hers arrived didn't know what was happening. So just kind of grabbed her on the shoulders, went hi and completely kind of spooked her. Mm -hmm. So she opened her eyes, turned to her friend and in her effort to kind of protest, like, Oh, it's just being hypnotized. She touched her head. (laughs) She sprung out of the chair. She ran downstairs. She stuck her hand in the bottom of the linen basket and she pulled out the keys. She didn't even need to kind of search. It was like bang. And she came out, completely freaked out obviously overjoyed that she'd found the keys um but again sometimes i'm convinced even you know very meaningful therapy let alone finding bunches of keys (laughs) just needs permission i mean it's 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 I don't want to undermine all our efforts and our kind of sophisticated techniques but sometimes people come in and just need permission to put their problem down. They just need permission to, or or not even permission, even that's kind of overstating it. They just need to be reminded that they could look at it differently. And it's similar to what you said. It's as if it's the first time this notion has ever occurred to them. Yeah. You know, you know, you can let go of that. You know, you know, that's, done you know that was just your imagination you know you can stop imagining that anytime right you can imagine something else entirely and sometimes it's just like that you know connects whatever would need to be connected and right you know it it it, it just seems to happen and um sometimes we have to dig in a little deeper and do it do a bit more work but i I think that explains um, to some degree when you just get the miraculous result, when you just don't even quite know what what happened or when you get someone, you know, diving into hypnosis, even though a moment before they said they didn't want to and you weren't even hypnotizing them. You know, you right. were just kind of talking about it. I've certainly had a couple of people in the audience do that um, at times and – I try to guard against it just because it's kind of, although it's it's good for good, good for the look of the, the the you know the the powers of the hypnotist leaking out through the ether. It's kind of slightly more difficult to manage, yep. but um, it just happens, and that's you know clearly now we know that we can that we we can use and create hypnotic effects without calling it hypnotism, without framing in that fashion, without going through some of the formalities and without making it look that way. Um, Absolutely. Yes, we can. You can just get started with suggestion because suggestion is, is, is the uh, ingredient you're adding to this person's personal reality. that's going to pull and tug it in different directions. It's interesting to me. Uh, Suggestion exists in a, in a, in a very um, a very infantile part of our consciousness, I, I think. Um, I've been noticing lately uh, the similarity between giving a suggestion such as, and your hand will, as I 
say these words slowly rise up to your head. And we use a particular language to maximize the uh, ability of getting the effect to happen as it happens uh, to my son, who's one years old and saying, where's your head? And then his hand goes directly up and touches his head. He doesn't have to think about it anymore because he's practiced the answer to that question. And there's, I'm just asking him, where's your head? But it's a suggestion in the way the response happens, the same way as a hypnotic suggestion happens. Indeed. It's automatic to a greater or lesser degree. Right. It just seems to happen. And again, all the the, the, the fancy language and, and the language patterns and all this kind of stuff is beautiful and it gives us flexibility. What those things seem to have in common is the cue that I mentioned earlier, which is often a tacit cue. It's just carried along by the phrasing that suggests a happening. You know, it will continue to. You'll notice. You can become aware of. All this stuff points to one place. Um, Your experiencing of this is going to be as if it's happening all by itself. And, again, the it brings us back to this kind of sense of control, which – characterizes our our normal life but i would question um uh, you know i I know you're familiar with some of the work on free will and if you read some of the kind of best thinking on that from the last few years if you read sam harris's book about free will you know it's kind of we're going way beyond the the famous libet experiment and the extension to that that suggests you know the origin of 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 clicking a button or lifting an arm um, began significantly earlier than you having the thought, I will click the button, I will lift my arm. And this puts a big crack down the notion that free will is, is, is sort of a defining characteristic of what makes us human or that free won't is uh, going to save us. You know, we I- are – I'm I'm very intrigued, and I think this correlates um, with what you're saying, uh, with the different perspective of the beginning of of things, um, and and the origin of things, being instead of matter, instead of the birth of matter, which science is determined to uh, understand and and describe. Yeah, it fascinates me that there's no consensus on what matter is. Right. I only found that out recently. It's like the the Greeks came up with a word 2,000 years ago, and yet still we're trying to find it. Exactly. And then the other side of it is the birth of thought. And if you look at the – most of the mystery arts and the ancient – secret society timelines and all those sorts of of uh, worlds of mystery um, and history, their perspective is that thought came first and out of thought came reality. And if you look at things that way, then the idea that um, free will, the idea of free will not being a thing, it starts to make more sense. Does that make sense? It does, but I think awareness trumps both, to be honest. 
you know, we're, we're, we're aware of thoughts coming and going. We're aware of feelings coming and going. Right. Our are, awareness are they, of them. Are, thoughts, I, just in that phrasing is, is an interesting concept. Thoughts coming and going. Did you generate the thought? Is it yours or did it just come to you from somewhere? You didn't generate it because there is no agent. Right. There is there is no agent to generate it. And 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 again, you might feel like there is an agent to experience it. You know, if you if you accept that the thought just arose, um, and then you could could kind of think, well, I, I'll choose to act on that thought. But again, if you're diligent and kind of honest and disciplined with your inquiry here, mm-hmm. you will find it very hard to, to um, I mean, let's just try this, Stuart. Have a spontaneous thought now. And what are you going to do? Sit and wait? <laughs> I did. You know, I, it, I, I closed my eyes. Uh, I, I tried not to be influenced by the visual phenomenon of the room that I'm in. And then, and then I closed my eyes to, to, count, to, to counteract that. And the first thing I thought of was a unicorn. I, Beautiful. But I probably was influenced by something in this room that I saw before. I, you know, like I, you know, something else. And, and now let's compare, let's compare that experience to. I want you to think of a mythical creature other than a unicorn. The griffin popped in my but head. Did you, did you exactly? You, it just popped into your head. It just popped in. Yep. It's it's essentially the same experience. That the sitting and waiting may have had a a different flavor to it, but the truth is it just pops in and that seems to be, you know, uh, how, how, how thoughts happen. It's just occasionally at the end of a bunch of thoughts popping in, a thought pops in that says, <laughs> I've had a great idea. Right. And we call that thought thinking. Right. But well, it's it, a very, one of the big, the biggest human things is to try to own thoughts. <laughs> That's yeah. mine. That's my thought. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, express them, share them. Great. But I am really at a point of, of kind of looking at all problems as just being for thought. I, you know, the, the bulk of the work I've done in the last 20 years as a therapist has been about how to um, change the way you think and feel and respond to ch- a person comes in essentially experiencing automatic thoughts, automatic responses. That's why they're there. Their accompanying sense of control feels very low or non-existent with regard to those thoughts or feelings. So one strategy is to try to, you know, boost and, and beef up their sense of control you know, you might call that kind of willpower, which right. I'm not the biggest of. Another way is to try and, you know, use it's just it's retune it so that the thought is different. And and to uh, many, many of the techniques that I use, you know, that, that people would know well, sort of from the classic 
techniques of hypnosis to some of the early techniques from the NLP uh, people are really just if if I look at it now, it's it's like well, actually, I'm I'm asking you to do it differently until that differently becomes a new automatic until you can think of the thing and no longer have the feeling, you know, again, despite the sophistication of the dissociation and the submodalities and the, 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 the language that goes along with it, the techniques all, all seem to have in common that I'm going to ask you to think about this, but in a, in such a way that we don't have the normal response or, or the response you've been used to, and then we'll get a new response and, and that will be satisfactory. So really it's about retraining thought and retraining feeling. Right. Um, I'm, I'm finding you can also be effective without going into any of the details of the thought or of the feeling. Instead, pursuing this line of inquiry with regard to the nature of thought and feeling and if you know it's not going to alarm your client too much to begin to examine who are those thoughts and feelings for and you kind of pull the rug on thought or you pull the rug on feeling at that point that that the, the whole thing goes and gives the person a moment of not feeling it of, of how could that ever bother me that, that 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 same feeling we've all had when we've got over a problem yes or we realize we are over a relationship or we realize man that used to really bother me and it it, it just doesn't anymore the, the recognition you're having is it, it, it isn't necessarily you know um positive and, and full of definition it's a lack of it, it's just not affecting you it's a it's a nothingness it's an emptiness with regard to that it's a it's a I, it's a recognition I guess it's done in the same way that we get over a headache and say my goodness it's gone you know that's that's as as clean and, and as beautiful and as worthy a moment in therapy as now I understand, now I can see it, now I get it, or now I'm in control of it. Right. Uh, we would only ever be prescribing another false sense of control, in, in my opinion, it, albeit that that can, be, that can be useful. But it, yeah. um, you end up playing whack-a-mole with people's problems. Um, and, and missing the opportunity for, you know, what might be a slightly broader transformation that would serve them better as they, as they go out into the future. How, how do you respond to people who come to you as a hypnotherapist with the intent to just have an experience of hypnosis? All they want is to experience the phenomena. Um, yeah, it's not that often that that happens in therapy. Right. Uh, you know, I do get those requests. Don't get me wrong. I, I, and I want to respond to them. I, uh, I've been trying to encourage exactly that for, for years, you know, say you're a hypnotist, be enthusiastic, tell them it's going to be fun. Tell them it will be, you know, it will teach them something about themselves it will, and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. If people want to just have the experience, then I do my best to give them that experience. Sure. And, you know, 
people who know my my stuff well, whether it's from therapeutic training or my performance related products with head hacking will know that typically that experience begins with physical phenomena so things like idiomotor movement arm levitation into catalepsy yeah and uh i have one or two uh critics kind of old school hypnotists who 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 try and characterize all of my work by that and say oh it's just a hand stick which it clearly isn't if they get to the, the end of the product or the end of the book. But my, my point is that if someone has an interest in experiencing the phenomena of hypnosis, then what we know is that the vast majority, you know, over 80% of people are going to quite readily experience the physical phenomena. Right. They can do that pretty easily. They can do it pretty quickly. Right. And, um, as we push, as we create that, you know, or elicit that phenomenon, if you want to put it that way, and we we then begin to kind of more and more robustly test it, I find for the vast majority of people that kind of stuff is an entirely satisfactory demonstration. Yeah. Obviously, I push it as far as I think I can push it. I don't feel compelled to push every demonstration to failure um but i want to push it as far as i can push it so i think if i can get a hand up i'll try and get it stuck if i can get a hand stuck i'll try and get their name stuck or their ability to speak stuck if i can get it so they can't speak then i'll push into the more cognitive phenomena and try and give an experience of not remembering and and, and right you know and and push on is, is the end all uh hallucination i mean that's kind of where it would go that spectrum would be yeah the end of that spectrum would be hallucination and yourself invisible yeah that would be a hallucination on unless i'm using other means (laughs) um (laughs) skills of the vagabonds too has some nice ways to disappear but you do need you know very large flower pots and things like that i love how uh in a sense We've we've started as hypnotists, but we realize that even as hypnotists, uh, we function better with results, more like witch doctors, more like shaman, more like the vagabond character that you play. If he exists a little bit in the hypnotherapy room, uh, I think he's probably more effective. Yeah, I frequently find myself saying that when I'm training people. You know, there's there's a there's a point where, um, yes, it could be useful to deal with some misconceptions. You know, the person isn't going to be asleep, and they are going to be able to hear what you're saying. They would be two misconceptions that some people bring in that I'd rather we deal with. Mm-hmm. However, flattening the whole thing by trying to make the person feel comfortable just kills it you know yeah. it, it 
feels completely normal. You know, the bizarre thing about it is it feels completely normal. You'll be able to hear everything I'm saying. You'll be thinking. Um, you can stop it any time you wish. Uh, you know, the weirdest thing is is it won't feel weird at all and, and blah, 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 blah. You know, I, I've said those things in therapy when someone's particularly nervous. It ends up being a bit of a lame session. It ends up kind of you, – you, you've just suggested to someone who may be very suggestible exactly what the experience is going to be like. So those opening remarks are are very important. And, yeah, it's finding a balance um, between the two. Yeah. But, again, the word is so powerful. The word hypnosis is so powerful, whether they, whether they think they believe in it or not. It doesn't make any difference. The word itself sets off some chain of, of thinking, if we can still call it that, in their mind or association. And the truth is – if they're capable, it's going to happen. I mean, it's just going to happen. And where I was going with uh, talking about the different phenomena was that for me now, the, 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 the thing that hits home, the thing that will, you know, if you like, have the most explosive effect is the movement from a sense of control to a sense of automaticity or involuntariness, the movement from a doing to a happening. In in our minds as hypnotists, especially, you know, if you're relatively new to it, then it kind of looks like hallucinations are more powerful and a stronger demonstration than sticking someone's hand to a table. Okay, and I've kind of always structured even the structure in my book and the structure in my products is this gradual scaling up from perhaps responses that are common to responses that are less common. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we we kind of celebrate when we when we make people hallucinate. But what we know, you know, what we know is that from from their perspective, the vividness of that hallucination is not important. It's not important at all. Your highly hypnotizable person doesn't have a special imagination, doesn't have a more vivid imagination. They're imagining things in the same way as your low, your person you're struggling to hypnotize. Their relationship to that imagined reality is the thing, is the thing. You know, so in that sense – Someone's hand being stuck to something and then pulling with all their might and looking at other people and trying to find a reference for the experience is is the thing that I'm trying to turn up. Exactly. Um, and, and to kind of put that in context now, one of the techniques I use very often now is to start with hallucinations. Now, again, if if – you know, you've studied this in a kind of traditional way. You think, what, does that mean just sticking your neck out and saying, I'm invisible? You know, is that really going to work? Don't I have to kind of warm them up and and, and step through the things? Well, that's one way of doing it. But again, bringing it into a kind of practical context, especially for those mystery performers who don't couch what they do in in the language of hypnosis, Mm -hmm. this approach is really about um, getting people to commit to the fact that they can see things. So I normally have the person look at me 
and I say, let's just, you know, let's just play a little game here. I want you to look at me. And if they know I'm a hypnotist, I might say, not in any kind of hypnotic fashion, but I want you to just kind of look this way. And of course, you can see the people standing next to us, right? You can see your friends there. And I'll gesture to wherever people are. Or if there aren't people there, I'll say, you know, you can see the windows, you know, on, on the wall over there. You can see the pictures on the wall, that kind of thing. Right. And they they say yes. And I say, now, just continue looking this way and tell me, what can you really see? Can you see any – how many people are wearing glasses? Or what's actually on that picture in the middle? Or how many windows are there? Right? And, and if you've left this in – so obviously this is in their peripheral view. You don't need to really think of it as hallucinating just yet. But their experience kind of sh- starts to wobble already because mm-hmm. – you know, you know, perhaps it was a bit cheeky of me to get to get them to commit to the fact that they could see it, but they were happy that they could. The, the reality is they can't, and unless they dodge their eyes over there, whatever it is they are perceiving in their peripheral view, as time goes by, and by this I'm talking about, you know, the next few seconds, I imagine that is kind of like a photocopy of a photocopy in that – Unless they directly look there, their brain is in the active creative process of maintaining this facade as it was last seen, if you like, as sure. it was last re- So if, if you like, even though it's still there, it's not like holes are appearing in it. It is becoming flimsier and flimsier. It is becoming weaker and weaker. It is getting to the point where I could start to pull at threads. Right. So if they say, um, well, yeah, I can kind of uh, – I can't really see their faces in that much detail. I say, well, what can you see where their faces would be? And they may say, well, it's just it's just like a blur of color. And can you distinguish between one blurred face and the next blurred face? So I start to kind of dig into – the blurry detail and then it, it's a bit like techniques that I'll use for pain where you get someone to focus on it and find its center and can you find its edge you know and could you stretch that is it is it absolutely clear where that begins and where it ends so you point people to the blur the ambiguity the the bit they're not sure about and then give them permission to begin to change that you know, what What kind of color, how would you best describe that? Or could you imagine that blur beginning to, to, to fuse with the other person, almost like there was one face or, or one wit or a hole in that wall? Could you imagine there's a hole in that wall? And I imagine there's nothing you can do about that. It just is just maintained there as long as you continue looking this way. So, you know, is that hallucinating or is it just pointing out the frailties of our visual perception? Well, Hmm. it's both. it's a bit of a bit of both but the point is when um that that hole in the wall can just as easily be an imaginary dog i wouldn't so, call it the frailties of your visual perception uh, in so much as the power of your mind to create an experience indeed. much better yes uh, indeed because we do i mean i was fascinated when i learned that what we know what we see and uh, experience as our reality moment by moment and a visual sense 
is really only if you were to reach your hand out in front of you, uh, something about the size of the tip of your finger is at a very good resolution. Everything else you're not really seeing in that moment. You're creating as your eyes dart around and your brain is constructing everything else that's going on. So that it would be easy to manipulate through your imagination things that aren't in that one little spot makes a lot of sense to me. Exactly. You know, and it's, it is a sign, as you said, is how creative and wonderful our brain is that it can fill this stuff in. Um, but again, you know, we, we the, the kind of agent we like to refer to, we were never involved in that. We wouldn't know how to do that. Right. We could. But, but when a hypnotist begins giving suggestions um, and, and leading you slightly. So, again, this question of, you know, what color, what size and breed is the dog over there? That's that's kind of what, one of my techniques for just invoking a dog. If I ask the question in that way, people just report on it. So to, to bring it back to this technique again, I'll say, um, I say, just, I say what, just look at me and I kind of wave my right hand around. So I'm pointing up to their kind of left, but I want them to look at me. I say, can you, um, uh, picture a loved one's face up here, someone who's absolutely dear to you. And, 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 you know, normally I can see when they've got someone because they'll smile or soften or something. But when you've got them there, just nod your head. Excellent. And can you move them over here? And I kind of make an arcing movement over to what would be their right side. And they just say, yes. I then say, leave them there and tell me what size and breed is the dog there? And I point down to my left, right? I can assure you that nine times out of 10, the person just says, it's an Alsatian. It's a big one. <laughs> it's a Labrador. <laughs> it's a Labrador, whatever. You know, right. I've never seen I've never seen a dog like that. I, it, 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 right? So, but my point is this, that the first – and this is very much for people who are interested in um, our automatic imagination model. This is one of my, you know, sort of first real um, uses of it. And I've been playing around with this idea in different senses for, for the last few years. But the first act of just picture a loved one, it would be no different to me saying, Stuart, if we rearrange the room this way, if we, what do you think it'd be like if we put your desk over there right. and you kind of stared into space and imagined that you wouldn't be saying, uh, sorry, but it's not vivid enough. You would just say, yeah, I can, you know, actually it's a corner desk, so I wouldn't really want it there, but maybe it could go in that corner. You know, you would, you would, you would report upon it, but you'd be looking into space kind of like it was there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I say, um, I'd like you to picture a loved one, you know, the person who's dearest to you on this planet. If there's more than one, see more than one. But when you've got them there, just let me know. People just say, yes, it, it's a doing. The accompanying feeling is I just did that. I like this. Right? I love I love going for the illusion and the um, the hallucination before other yeah. things. That's great. <laughs> Exactly. It's so simple. And, and the point is the quality of that, the quality of that imagined loved one, if, if we examined it, is no different from the quality of the dog. And the origin of that image was, as we spoke of earlier, it just popped into their mind. I've had some people say, yeah, actually, I thought of that photograph that's hanging in the hallway. But when you said, move them over there, I actually 
gave it a bit of thought and, and a different, a better image came into my mind. Have you done but this it, with groups of people? Yes, I have. I have done this with small groups. Nice. I normally use a wall and a hole in the wall or something like that. Right. But again, it's not that what I'm going for, what I'm kind of, I'm trying to kind of, um, I, not that it's this predatory, but I sometimes say it's a bit like walking someone into the fly trap. They don't know they're in it, much like the fly. They don't know they're in it until they try and fly out. And right. it's the same with these kind of techniques. You say, just imagine this. You can imagine that, right? Yeah, I can imagine that. Can you move it over here, which now suggests they can manipulate this imagined thing? And then when you say, what size and breed is the dog down there? Um, or could you imagine being able to see through that person and, and see the wall or whatever? Then more often than not, they're in the mode of just, yes, I can. Okay, but let's imagine that the accompanying feeling from the first image to the second image and even to the dog is still of a doing. When I then say things like imagine it's twice as big or um, what's it doing? They have to report on it and they report on it just like someone on stage who's been induced and deepened and led through a bunch of stuff. They they say uh, it's kind of looking at me. It's 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 ooh, ooh, you know it's just showing its teeth or, or it's got teeth and claws or it's growling. Um, they're not freaking out. They're not saying, "Oh my god, you've made me hallucinate." But they are reporting on a an, an imagined thing now, and they're not they're not saying, "Okay, now I am imagining. Now I'm going to imagine it's going to growl." They just report on it. They just tell you about the details of it. And in that sense, the response is exactly the same as if we'd gone through the formal process. Right. Where I where I typically go next, especially if I invoke a dog, or um, if it's I do this on Skype. In fact, Kevin uh, was the first to kind of do this with someone over Skype. A few months back, I did it with someone just via Facebook Messenger. So I couldn't see, and you can find this transcript, actually. There's a head hacking group on Facebook, and the transcript of that conversation is there in full. Um, Where I got a guy imagining, I normally say a rodent, he actually imagined a rabbit, right? But once they've got that dog or rabbit or rodent, whatever it is, I then say, now, I want you to imagine the mother of... All dogs, you know, five feet tall is standing right behind you, leaning in towards your ear. And I point at their stomach and say, what's that feeling now? Or on messenger, you know, what does that feel like? Well, now they're reporting on feelings. And and the truth is they're definitely not doing feelings. Feelings are automatic. So they say, oh, I feel a bit scared. Then I can start to actively suggest that that feeling is going to do something, change in some way, move somewhere. And then I typically go into the physical suggestions. So it's almost like I call it coming down the chain. I'll start by casually inducing hallucinations, not even really calling it hallucinations. But then we'll go from the hallucination to, to a feeling, and then we'll take that feeling, we'll put it into the body and stick them to the chair or stick their hand. Once we've kind of come down that chain, well, we know we can climb up that chain again very easily. And it, it actually takes away the, you know, the slightly uh, uh, nervous leap that the budding hypnotist has to make right. of just saying, when, I, when your eyes open – 
there will be a dog in front of you or when you when I click my fingers, you will no longer be able to see me. Um, so, yeah, I. You know, the light, there is no real line for me anymore about when someone's hypnotized and when someone's not. The defining and only characteristic of hypnosis is this is where you lay on the on the on the spectrum with a sense of control one end and a sense of no control on the other end it's not about um how deep or tranced or or sleepy um or relaxed and it's not about how vivid and how real it's about is it still there <laughs> you know are you are are you reporting on it? And I sometimes frame that as kind of, you know, if you if you were home alone and um, you just got a feeling someone was in the house, you know, who shouldn't be, or, or or you saw something shimmering in the corner that was like a ghost, and you rubbed your eyes and said, you know, I'm tired, and and you looked again and it was still there, or you could still hear the breathing from the bathroom, or you could still hear the footsteps from upstairs you wouldn't care about how vivid it was. You wouldn't care if it was semi-transparent, barely there, or invisible, and I know it's still there. You wouldn't care. Your reaction would be fully congruent with that being, you know, the slime monster out of Ghostbusters or or an axe murderer next door. The point is it's once our imagination has, you know, actively created or found this reality in in the noises and the temperatures and the, the you know whatever would be needed to kind of conjure that up it's the accompanying feeling that's the important thing and again this now kind of reinforms what i do in both performance and in therapy actually in the that's what I'm trying to cultivate. Even if you follow the, the, the process outlined in my book, Reality is Plastic or, or the Trilby Connection, you know, which is a very kind of similar uh, process. Again, I'm just looking at it through the new lens. It's not that I necessarily have to change the techniques. And if you see me doing a gig, you will see me doing the stuff that's in the Trilby Connection. Right. It's just that rather than thinking I am um, – gradually walking this person in that this is a prerequisite to to getting to the hypnotic part of the session my view is that this person is permanently receptive to ideas that their personal reality is a fiction and i am just you know turning some of the dials as best I can to give them a slightly tweaked or different version of that personal reality. It may look and feel. Would you say that different people have varying levels of ability to imagine? Um, Yes. But as I said, the, there are ways of testing people's imaginative ability. Mm. You know, was it as real as, my hand is in front of you. No, it wasn't as real as my hand is in front of you. Well, how real was it? If my hand was semi-transparent, if it was a hologram, if it wasn't there, but there was an outline, you know, there are ways of testing people's imaginative ability. Um, However, highly hypnotizable people don't seem to have 
an extra special imaginative ability. Mm. So it, the, the next question is, do some people seem to have perhaps a looser relationship to that imagined reality or do they sense things as a happening? Or sometimes I kind of look at it almost of a synesthesia rather than thinking of synesthesia between one sense and another. I kind of look at it as a synesthesia between the imagined, your imagined reality and your sense of control or your sense of it being a happening. So it, 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 you know, again, traditionally, I've been a pretty poor subject for hypnosis, and that's always been most frustrating to me because I, I want to have those experiences. I want to be able to hallucinate on demand. You know, I'd love to instantly change my state as people appear to. And and actually, since adopting this perspective, the the vividness is not important. The state is not is not a prerequisite. I've become a a much, much better subject and I can hallucinate and I can hallucinate on demand. Right. My, my, my relationship to that hallucination is, is perhaps not quite as freaked out as you occasionally get when you invoke it in someone who's not expecting it right. because still the, 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 the feeling like the driver of it, you know, but, um, that's had an impact on so many other things that were out of reach for me before, like lucid dreaming has become uh, very very easy uh, it's it's almost just like just something to look for and yeah. um and for me lucid dreaming has always been the thing that happens when right before i'm going to sleep i'm thinking i want to control my dreams <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then, well, and then good- i do and then i have these very lucid dreams yeah well that's that's good i mean but I, I started doing that with the lucid dreaming book when I was a kid. So that's, yeah, there was training I think knowing, that I probably did that. I don't remember doing. Yeah. And knowing that you can, you know, yeah. it's a bit, it's a bit like rather than trying to meditate and thinking, am I meditating? Right. Um, you know, or am I lucid dreaming or am I just imagining stuff or, or whatever, but where I'm at with that and, and what I enjoy that the realization for me was not that I, actually fill in the details it's more that i can it's kind of like falling through a kaleidoscope where i can choose the subject so i could think of my son or i could think of you know beautiful places or whatever it happens to be and i will then be falling through a kaleidoscope of that almost like if if life was rushing before your eyes and you know that everything that needed to symbolize that could come past you it's a bit like that so so it's not that i control anything other than the pointing of my awareness toward a particular area and then it's like but you know that's again that that kind of frustrated me for a long time and uh it, it 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 remained a mystery and now it's just like it's very psychedelic. I mean, it's it's complete. It's like, my goodness, I couldn't imagine this. Nice. I couldn't do it this well. I'm not artistic enough to, to, to conjure it up. But as soon as I can point my awareness in a particular direction, it just appears. And again, it seems mysterious if you haven't paid attention to it before. But it, of course, that's what's happened every night on, on the cusp of sleep. And at certain phases throughout the night, we just call it dreaming and we 
you know, we obviously have this ability to, the to experience the amnesia. This week comes to us from Cameron Murray uh, via Twitter. Of the week. an image and um, uh, the message on the tweet was that at Overtown Bridge in Scotland, uh, 50 dogs or over 50 years, a dog a year has leaped to its death. And actually, I think it's even more than that because some years more dogs leaped. And then there are dogs that leap over this bridge that don't die. But why are they leaping? That is the question. And there are many thoughts as to the answer. And I think it brings up some interesting questions about consciousness and animals and our pets especially. A lot of people uh, are on the fence on this. And it's strange to me because I grew up with many pets and uh, they have obviously complicated emotions and relationships that they create with their human friends or masters. And um, I think all animals, all living things are are conscious and all living things uh, demand respect. And uh, that, that does create a interesting question about lots of things such as uh, eating animals and factories. And that gets into a very deep uh, debate uh, about the way that we live that I have uh, questioned much of my life for many years. I was a vegetarian. I'm not now. Um, but, uh, I do respect that cause very greatly. Um, do dogs get suicidal? That is our first thought. Are these dogs jumping off this bridge because they can't take it anymore? I don't think so. I mean, that's a personal opinion, but, um, I don't think that, that the dogs would uh, be doing that. Dogs who are ill or, uh, down to me will go off into a forest and you just won't be able to find them anymore. Uh, this sort of go off and die alone thing uh, that uh, might be uh, part of being dog, might be uh, some sort of instinctual uh, pack reaction. I don't know. I'm sure there's a study out there somewhere. Um, the second question is, is it something supernatural, which is fun. The idea that it's a supernatural situation is a very fun idea, and uh, it could be that they're chasing a ghost. It could be that there's something uh, that they sense because their senses are different than ours that we are unable to experience. Then the final explanation, which is the most plausible and um, uh, interesting also, is that the dogs are trying to chase a mink or an animal, a mouse of some form. Uh, they did find that there were a lot of minks around that area. And uh, the idea is that the shape of the um, bridge being such that it blocks off their view and also the sounds of nature around limits the dog's experience to smell. And they can smell these mink uh, or rodents of whatever form and they're jumping off to chase them not knowing that there's a deep chasm they are jumping into that makes sense to me but it's not as interesting as the mystery that uh that it opens up but what i find about most of these interesting mysteries and the reason that they perpetuate is that there's no way for us to know unless we get inside the head of a dog just like you can't get inside of the head of your own baby until it learns to talk to you you never really know the answers to your questions about what they're thinking and their motivations for what they're doing. You can only be patient, observe, and wait. Because um, you will find some form of understanding eventually. And so I uh, question um, the listeners. What is your experience with animals? Have you found uh, animals to... 
since things that are not in your house before? Or have you have any interesting, mysterious stories about animals in your life? Uh, do you believe that animals have the same amount of consciousness, uh, or is it more limited than ours? Or where is that line uh, from human to beast? I look forward to your responses. You can uh, go to Mysterious World on Facebook. You can go to the mysteriousworldpodcast.com or stuartpalm.com slash podcast. Either way, we'll uh, bring you to the website. And you can also uh, just go on there. There's all the list of all the ways you can contact us. You could email mysteriousworldpodcast at gmail.com as well. So I look forward to that. Please send your messages. Um, And now back to... Anthony Jackwin. Have you come across uh, anyone with uh, aphantasia or the uh, or who doesn't have the ability to imagine visually? Uh, I've certainly had people report that. Um, in therapy, I guess. Uh, in, yeah. in performance, they're probably excluded and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, surreptitiously sidelined. <laughs> That's why we get to that. Um, but no, I have had. Game. Yeah, exactly. It, you know, it depends on what I want to present. But um, yeah, in the early years of doing therapy, um, uh, you know, I, I guess most of the techniques I use had a leaning toward being quite visual, and um, and some would say I couldn't see, you know, the the cinema screen; it was just blank. Yeah. You know, and I've kind of walked them through a technique, and, and for that reason, actually, if I'm ever using any kind of visual technique. I will just get a head nod early on when I get the first kind of, you know, imagine this. And when you can see that, nod your head so that I understand. I, I get a head nod. So if someone's struggling, they will say. And 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 even if they're seeing it to some degree, you've got to understand that some people are um, not satisfied or don't think it's vivid enough or, or I can't see my face. They'll often say things like that. But I can't see my face. There's no way I can see my face. Um the com- drawing a complete blank. I have had one or two who literally just say, "No, when I close my eyes, it's it's black." Right. And I didn't realize until some point last year that that was even something that some people yeah. had. There, there's a great site actually where I, I can't remember what it is, but if you if you search for that problem, you'll find it. It's just like a little WordPress thing, but where the guy reported it as being his problem. He, in fact, he didn't know he had the problem, right. you know, until he, until he was an adult. And he was and comparing he it saw, to other people and their experiences and how they described them and then realized, oh, yeah. wait, people actually aren't just, this isn't just yeah. a word game. They actually can see this in their head. Exactly. And then when he kind of posted about it, you know, some blog about it, tons and tons of people have chimed in. I'll, I'll try and find it for you because yeah, it's, it's a useful. It's aphantasia in- is the name of the condition. Right. A-P-H. Okay. Um, Something. And it's a condition, I guess. Yeah, I guess people kind of see it as a condition. Um, it's weird. I mean, you can say things like, well, what color is your front door? White. How do you know that? I just know that. <laughs> you know, because I just 
hear the word white when 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 you asked me the question you know so um yeah i have i've had i wonder if, if they can uh do what we do visually auditorily or um kinesthetically or tact in a tactile sense so if you were to say um here in your mind the sound of the door closing if they would do that yeah, I mean, they're the kind of workarounds I've had to use um, for those techniques. So you can certainly do, you know, the equivalent of um, rewind style techniques. Right. Or you can um, do swish patterns, things like that, just with feelings. So it can be done. But this, is, again, is... is well, I wouldn't say it's part of the reason, but it's one of the benefits of using idiomotor movement um, to to communicate is that it doesn't really matter what they're imagining. It doesn't really matter so much um, how they're picturing, what they're seeing, because I'm not speaking to, to them. I'm, right. I'm, I'm, I'm a, to communicate with the thing we have collectively agreed to call their unconscious or non-conscious is a is perhaps a better way of putting it. Well, I love uh, that. I love that all of these concepts, even hypnosis itself, are completely open to interpretation and uh, becoming other models. So while. I could hand you a pendulum and say, if you imagine that pendulum going in a circle, it will begin to go in a circle, and then it will begin to go in a circle, and I can tell you that is your subconscious, that is your unconscious, that is your spirit guide, that is your fairy godmother. Any of these, you know, these are all not provable or disprovable things. It's whichever one you decide is the one that works. Yeah, and you know what? After after using idiomotor movement as idiomotor communication for for many many years um our very no our second hypnotism conference change phenomena 2011 we had professor irving kirsch speaking and he made me question it just with one slayed it slashed it down with one sentence of idiomotor communication doesn't work and, you know, I've got a lot of respect for this guy. So it kind of made me question it. And not as a, a, a phenomenon that I can occur, but it, that, that can occur and that I can suggest, but the validity of it as unconscious communication. Suddenly it was like, yeah, would I, would I speak about a pendulum in the same way as I would in, you know, a finger lifting? Well, probably not. Why not? And, and, and in truth, there's no difference. You know, idiomotor communication is very much idiomotor movement plus meaning yeah and that it's 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 no more uh you know a, a creative addition by me to suggest that that is their unconscious subconscious than it would be this is your spirit guide or or or, or is there anybody there um in fact i've been playing around with that uh there's a there's a technique out that i think you've heard of called the swan by a good friend of mine called Bob Burns. Yes, you know, who, I would love someday to get Bob on this uh, podcast as well. I, I really love should. his work. Bob Burns is a fascinating person. Yeah, you really should because, um, I mean, not only is Bob kind of, he spent most of his therapeutic career essentially doing, I think it was kind of neo-psychoanalysis, which is psychoanalysis, but 
you know, it's not all about sex, um, but it's the same kind of thing. But he's also, you know, done tons of work and work with groups, psychics and mystics and all that kind of thing. And he's very comfortable um, leaving that, that area of mystery open and, and talking about it. But it, in most of the interviews, he's obviously being hit, uh, spoken to as a hypnotist and a therapist and they, they, they skirt around the edge, but they don't, don't go too deep they don't into, go into it. the fun part. <laughs> they don't. So he, so he, he really should get him on and get him interviewed because he's yeah, got a lot. Yeah, of- I was meeting with a, a, another hypnotherapist here who, um, it so happens, went to Scotland and did a session with him and just had a wonderful things to report on that experience and, uh, and talked about uh, Bob taking the sp- the swan even further from the idiomotor response and from the hand um, responding into the person, um, the mouth moving and the person speaking from the perspective of the unconscious, which is fascinating. The very first time I used it, I I used it in that way. I'll, I'll tell you that in a moment. But one, one of the things that... Um, you can demonstrate is let's say you use that you could use the swan or any other idiom or movement but let's let's say you've you've essentially made out you're speaking to the unconscious and it communicates and it finds new choices and it takes makes the change and you know everything is in the right place yeah. if bob demonstrated at our conference he then started asking some other questions um and i know others um you know, who are into the swan who have done the same thing. So if you start just saying things like, are you John's subconscious? You may not get a yes. Are you in this room? Right. Have you, have you ever been born? You know, do you have an age? If you start to ask questions like this, then you start to get, Either way, the responses are going to are going to suggest something pretty peculiar. At first, I thought it's a little bit cheeky to be asking those questions because, you know, if someone doesn't believe in spirit realms and, and you know, this kind of mystical communication, it's like, well, you know, it could, could be a little bit unsettling, I guess. But however, in the context of performance or in the context of people who want to do that, yeah, I found that you can very easily just say, just put your hand like this and, you know, talk about communication or different levels or spirit, whatever you want to invoke. Mm-hmm. And then just say, like we're at a seance, is there anybody there? Is there anybody there? Is there anyone listening? If there is, I'd like you to move John's hand in some way. Right. Boom. Now, if you have a table of people, you have you know five, six, ten people sitting around a table. Some of them will jump out of their chairs. It, it's pretty freaky stuff, and you get more than one speaking, and you have to kind of quieten them down. I had some fun with this on Halloween last year. Yeah, that's good. Um, but let me just tell you the the first time I used the Swan. I, you know, I'm a member of Bob Bob's Swan Forum, and people have been. Uh, I mean, even before the swan, to be honest, people would turn idiomotor movement into idio voice. You can just say, is the unconscious willing to speak yep. using voice? It's as simple as that, really. Yep. Um, 
but it, it's the fact that <laughs> the swan looks a bit like a swan. So, so it could speak. So the first time I did this, um, someone, someone came to see me, uh, with an anxiety issue, but they'd also done a lot of, they were, they were a therapist. They'd done a lot of training and they'd done some hypnosis training and it was a reasonable session and there was idiomotor movement. I didn't use the swan, but when I did the wake up this, I suddenly realized that this person was an amazing subject. Because hmm. right, I did this big wake up, it's pretty standard kind of stuff for me. But they were, oh my god, that is so refreshing! I feel like I've had eight hours sleep, and kind of just repeated everything I'd said. So, um, I just thought, oh, you know, the, I didn't push that person particularly hard. It was a therapeutic situation. Anyway, they came back for their follow up, and really liked to talk actually. And this person was keen to kind of unpack. You know, they'd spent the week going over it and was keen to kind of unpack everything we'd done in that session and talk about it. And I, I didn't want to do that. I didn't really have the time, but I, 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 that's not how I work. I don't encourage picking over the bones of, of the techniques. Right. Anyway, they were jabbering on and I just <laughs> said, hey, let me show you something. Put your arm on the chair like this. When your unconscious is ready to go to work. It's going to move that hand. And boom, I got an immediate movement. Mm -hmm. And they looked quite alarmed. So you then reinforce that with, you know, another movement. Or in his case, I said, if that really is John's unconscious, I want it to turn that hand toward John's face. Do not move it consciously, John. Right. And so as clear as I could. And it went. Yeah. And, and and he actually backed away from it, you know, like this was some sort of cobra about to, you know, spit in his eyes or something like that. It was kind of like, Ugh. and I was just feeling a bit cheeky. I don't know why I said it. I said, it could even speak. <laughs> right? And in the worst ventriloquist effort ever, this guy it turned toward me. It darted toward me and went, hello, Anthony. <laughs> and it darted back at him and said, hello, John. And he was completely freaked out. And at the end of the session, we spoke about it. And he was like, I was adamant. There was no way I was going to turn my hand. When you said it would speak, I thought, how ridiculous. And it just went, hello, hello. So um, I didn't really push it that much further because it was all I could do to stop myself from laughing. So I had to, it's a very bad habit of cracking up laughing when things like this happen. So I was going like, close your eyes, close your eyes, go into hypnosis. Um, but yeah, you can, you can get it to speak and it's all manner of things you can do with it. But again, I, um, I know Bob likes to kind of, you know, leave it open for debate is this just an idiomotor movement or is it something more than that? To me, it is an idiomotor movement, but it's infinitely more interesting than just having a finger twitch. Sure. It, it, it's in fact, when I do my therapy for, for years, you know, for like over 15 years, I do an induction that leaves the person's hand in the swan position 
called the power lift Mm -hmm. and then i invoke idiomotor movement normally in that hand so if you like bob's just cut to the chase and said well you can just you could just kind of start there. So in my view, it is an idiomotor movement, but it just has the nature of it, the fact that it kind of, whether you call it a swan or not, I normally say, no, it does look a bit like a swan's head, right? It, it kind of embodies it with with more characteristics than just a, the normal twitch. So I'm a big fan of it. And I, I also really... Um, Again, it's just kind of looking at my work for a slightly different lens. Mm-hmm. In the, I've always encouraged idiomotor movement. That's how I, that's how I train hypnotists. Is get entirely comfortable with invoking this kind of stuff. Be able to do it anytime, anywhere, with individuals, with groups, and be able to do it in and out of a hypnotic frame and context. That's how I train people. The, the, sure. the quicker you, the quicker you get comfortable with that, the quicker you'll realise everything else is just an additional suggestion but i've got to say i point more and more mystery performers at a swan yeah. i'm like you'll, you'll see how simple it is you'll 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 grasp its potential immediately um have a play with it and uh, you know again especially people who don't want to frame it as hypnosis and all the baggage that kind of comes with it's like well let's just let's just get started and again i i, I kind of said it earlier the the Maybe I didn't quite finish saying it, but the, the, the fact remains that the physical phenomena of hypnosis, and, and the swan may be one of them, um, is entirely satisfactory to the subject. It, it could be one of the most profound experiences they've ever had. So your hand moving by itself, communicating, or not being able to move it. The same accompanying feeling is what, has the, the 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 punch and that's the fact that this is happening without you being involved the the beauty of the swan is that you i mean you always are lucid even when you're hypnotized but you you, you know you 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 know for a fact that you're completely lucid you know that everything else is normal except this one thing and that 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 adds to its stark contrast with sure. what you've been what you've been calling normality. So yeah, I, you know, I'm a big fan of that. And I, I would certainly, I know Bob's, um, you know, it's taken over the world. This one now he's, he's going all over the place this year. And if he's in a country near you, even if you're not a therapist, go um, experience it, go, you'd have a, yeah, experience it. And it's a, it's a, it's also a great way of, um, it's like a shortcut into self hypnosis. You know, what, what prevented me, really getting into self-hypnosis and kind of using it uh, as, as much as I would have done in the early years is that I thought the state was a prerequisite and I wasn't really feeling the state change. Now, I, I, in fact, I'd say all I do is impromptu self-hypnosis. Mm-hmm. It's the mm-hmm. case. It could be two minutes before going on stage or into a meeting. It could be that I'm anticipating something next week, or it could be something's come up that's bugging me from last week. I just begin. And if you need some, I, I personally don't need the, the verification and validation that idiomotor movement brings, but you know, if you do, then just do it. Just, just um, create 
your own swan, get communicating with yourself. Agreed. And that then you kind of settle about that. Okay, well, I, this, this seems to be happening and start to imagine, you know, a better future, a brighter personal reality. Recognize that, you know, hearing things like your personal reality is a fiction is not something to be afraid of. It's, it, it's, it's a blessing hearing that, you know, from neuroscience to philosophers are questioning the validity of free will shouldn't uh, scare you. It's liberating. In fact, that's, that's kind of where I'm at on these things. It's, um, I, I, uh, I love that, um, that we started with the question, what is hypnosis? And, uh, we went deeper and deeper, uh, for now, hour and a half or so, uh, yeah. <laughs> this got, this got real deep, real fast, but quite interesting at the same time. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. I, I do want to get a little bit of, um, context for the listener on, um, on you and your story, um, and and I think that you are you, to my knowledge, are the only uh, hypnotist and hypnotherapist that I know of who is a legacy uh, hypnotherapist. In that your father is also a hypnotherapist, and you learn from him. Um, yeah. But before you were a hypnotherapist, what were you studying? What was your thing? Right. I um. I I did a degree. And then did a master's degree in geographical information systems and remote sensing, which is kind of a geography degree, but using the technology that was emerging at the time, um, kind of publicly available satellite imagery, Mm. photographs, and that kind of thing. In fact, my, my dissertation for my master's was about how you could attach a GPS to an analog or digital video cameras were just coming out. You could attach a GPS to a video camera, fly it on a remote controlled airplane and create strip maps in real time. So this was, um, this kind of interesting, but I discovered maps. Yeah. Yeah. And basically what happened after that was I, in fact, I, I always knew I was colorblind, but it wasn't until I was doing a master's in geographic information system where they take red, green, and blue and turn it into – transform that into – so you can see infrared, uh, uh, green, and red, that I realized, oh, I can't actually do this work. <laughs> I can't oh, tell no. the tree <laughs> from the car. I can't tell purple or brown from dark blue and green. You know, this is no good. So I got into um, – sales which was kind of a natural place for me most of the jobs I'd, I'd done outside of sort of being a landscape gardener when I was a student which is something I love doing just building gardens and stuff I was not that skilled but I really love the work um I got into sales and worked in the city of London for a dot-com which was really exciting company actually they were called whereonearth.com I believe they've been absorbed by Hutchison or Yahoo now, but basically they had a global, the biggest database of 
um, places with a coordinate uh, of, of anybody. And this technology, this is pre-3G. Um, you know, it's easy to forget now that there was a while 10, 15 years ago when we didn't have location-based services. You couldn't do find my nearest. Right. It's now just ubiquitous. And that's kind of what I was doing at the time. And so I was selling the software that allowed you to do where's my nearest. Yeah. And this this just brought alive kind of data sets for insurance companies. You know, we know we've got 3 billion worth of risk in downtown, you know, Kuala Lumpur, but we actually don't know what happens when the, the river Klang floods, you know, where, where is our stuff? It just appears to be a big red dot. So that was, that was interesting. Um, but throughout that period, I mean, I first learned hypnosis in 1995 and finished my degree in 97 and, and master's degree and then worked in the city for a few years doing that kind of stuff. And then uh, last minute, whatever, there's the whole dot-com crash and I was like the last hip, last salesman standing, but eventually was made redundant and Every month for the kind of year and a half prior to that, my dad was by that time a full-time hypnotherapist and I was doing as much as I could. I was like, you know, in six months I'm going to leave. In six months I'm going to leave and you keep getting paid and, you know, and, and all that kind of different commitments. So they kind of made the decision for me. Nice. So um, I had six weeks to make it happen. And it maybe it was good timing. Maybe it's because we had a decent model of how to do it by then. But I started advertising locally. First ad, I got eight clients. Next ad, another six. Then I got some referrals. And that didn't stop or slow down for three and a half thousand clients. I, I, I would see 20, 25 people a week, every week. And I did that year in, year out, just kind of, you know, well honing owning the system that my dad and I were working. It's kind of as tough now as it's ever been. I don't know if it's gone out of fashion or I've just hypnotized everyone in my local town who might consider it. <laughs> but uh, it, it's, you know, my business model has changed and um, the, the it, it's still what I do. It's still my job. I'm still a hypnotherapist and I'm still known locally as a hypnotherapist. Um, but I just, you know, spend more of my time performing and more of my time kind of traveling and training. Um, well, it's I do you other places. It's, 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 take yeah. me, it's taken me around the world a few times. Yeah. And, and even now that's kind of developing. I've got to say that, uh, more and more, I kind of, it's more in depth one-to-one -one training and kind of ongoing mentoring. Uh, even if that amounts to, you know, an hour a week with some people, some of my, clients or students, if you want to call them that, have long-term goals with hypnosis, whether it's they want to achieve a certain level in their practice or performance, or they want to integrate it. Um, I've done work with musicians who want to integrate it. I've done work with people who want to make short films who want to integrate it. Because, you know, by... I know people perhaps got tired of this debate about the nature of hypnosis, and it's still goes on, on on internet forums but the truth is that the the real fallout from that was that 
even though it was kind of hard to take as the traditional pillars of hypnotism kind of started to fall over, it liberated us. It turned out they were kind of shackles in that it, it kind of held me in a particular way and made me work in a particular way and made me, you know, apply it in a particular way. But now we're free of that. Um, it, it's, it's, it's for everyone. You know, it's, it's, I, I really feel that it's a real passion of mine that I, I believe I used to say these tools should be in more people's hands, but it it's more akin to what you said earlier um, when you alerted people to the nature of memory. It's more a case of this knowledge should be in more people's hands. I totally you know, agree. Let's, you know, let's, let's stop fretting about I these perceived... I remember perce- the first time it- I learned about mnemonic systems and memory tricks for memorizing large, seemingly impossible groups of information, um, which when you do it, people think, oh, he's a super genius or he's got a photographic memory. But but wanting to scream to everyone, no, you can learn this too. And wishing that I'd learned it back when that would have been really useful when I was taking standardized testing and things in school, you know, yeah. Why doesn't yeah. everybody know this? Why don't why is this not part of your education system? Yeah. You know, why don't you learn to use your brain in the ways that are amazing that it can that it can work? And I have the mm-hmm. same response um with hypnosis. It should be something we all it's part of our lives. It's part of our lives and it and it, and it, it you know as, as as much as a joy as it is being the guy with the special skills and the special knowledge, um, this particular skill and knowledge is such a gift. I mean, and it, and it even in its simplest application, and if not as anything well as, else, just the use and understanding of the use of language would make the world a better place. Absolutely, it would, and you know, it also shines a light onto some of the mysteries um, that we've been pondering, you know, for for years and years and years. It, it really does, you know, it it shines a light. It it, it asks the relevant questions, the right questions, you know, with regard to our personal reality, our perception, our, the meaning making we're doing. And, for that reason, you know, it it's fascinating. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's obvious that it's fascinating because you say the word and people kind of look up. It's not always fear. It's it's fascination. It's it's inexplicable. Right. You know, but but when you get over that and you look at, well, what does it really suggest about the nature of perception, reality, or personal reality? It's no less amazing. It's no less... Uh, mysterious, right? In fact, even more mysterious because it, it starts to tug at the threads that you thought were reliably kind of sewn in place, and um, you know where that's kind of pushed me. I, I'd say it's been transformative, and and perhaps people imagine you know because I've been doing this for twenty years that um there's nothing more to be revealed, but I'd say just the last couple of literally the last two years, it's almost like it just keeps revealing more and more. 
Right. You keep opening new doors, new realities, new things unfold. Yeah. And that's you know, why I, it keeps you engaged. That's why it never, never I, is. Uh, you know, I, you know, I think people perhaps imagine he, he just kind of rehashing it or reselling it or, and it's like, no, <laughs> I'm, I, that's not my interest. You know, right. my interest, where, where is this pointing? Where's it pointing to? Where's it pointing from? You know, what, how can you stand in the light of what this is suggesting about yeah. the nature of who you are, not just your potential, but, you know, on a, on a more kind of general level. And so, yeah, for me, it, the, the fascination doesn't dim. I sometimes say to people that a, that I'm no less fascinated, but B I'm still amazed when it, when it happens and I'm performing with it, it still blows my mind. That, that <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, that, that, that this can happen just as it does in therapy that someone can go from chronic pain to no pain yeah or, every, every hypnosis session that i do is exciting for me because i love seeing it happen and seeing yeah. the different ways it can happen and the different ways that it you know what does work with some people and doesn't work with other people and how they respond it's all just mind-boggling and, and wonderful it is indeed. You know, I feel like we have more to talk about. Um, I definitely well, have enough to make a podcast from, but I feel like we could uh, get some more and I can craft it down into something else. Because um, I want to ask you about a, a um, I want to ask you about uh, head hackers and how that came about and the, the, um, these other characters you play, and and then of course you know I need to know what uh, Godelian mathematics is or whatever it was you said at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, well, I say a good friend of mine who's like super brain keeps talking to me about it with regard to hypnosis and uh, automatic imagination, and I I came across a quote. It's like my first Godel point, which is the end point of rationality is to point out the limit of rationality. And he came back with every useful system of logic shows its basis as arbitrary. So that's about all I know about Gedelian mathematics, but you need to. <laughs> yeah. Note, you may I'm have... going to go have some dinner. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it's look, been lovely um, talking to you. Um, yeah. and, and I hope I hope this, you know, uh, draws some questions from your listeners. Yeah. I'd be very happy to do a round two whenever you are. Great. All right. Wonderful. Take Have a care, Stuart. Day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Anthony Jackwin for joining us in this conversation. I guess I should say joining me. Um, really enjoyed that. I really enjoy talking to him. Um, I, I'm looking forward to doing it again eventually. Uh, we have a few people lined up for the next episodes, so this will keep rolling on. So you can look forward to um, an interview with a paranormalist and an interview with another uh, hypnotist. Um, We'll keep talking on this. I'm also starting a, a series of talks in Hong Kong of live talks uh, that we're calling Mysterious World Live Talks, of all things. And uh, so if you're in the Hong Kong area, look at the meetups um, 
uh, app or website and uh, join us at Mysterious World uh, Meetup. And uh, we will be posting there when we have live talks and so on and so forth. Uh, the one is happening actually today uh, where TJ Hanretta is going to present uh, some of her work on firewalking and on the law of attraction. Uh, we are going to start doing some firewalks in Hong Kong. So if you're in the Hong Kong area or, or in Asia and can travel to the Hong Kong area, you can come join us for a firewalk, which is very exciting. Uh, otherwise, have a wonderful Chinese New Year. I'm about to leave and travel to the United States for the first time with my son, uh, who is now a year and three months old. And... Um, so that'll be a wonderful uh, adventure all of its own, meeting family and uh, long plane flights with an infant. Um, Chinese New Year happens in the beginning of February. I think it's like the 10th or something. Uh, I have to look that up. But the uh, it's the Lunar New Year. So Happy New Year. Gong Fa Choi to Asian listeners. And uh, thanks for listening. Have a great week. change the world there's nothing to it there is no place i know like the world of pure imagination come with me and you'll see if only you believe 
Thanks for listening to the end of the podcast. Uh, if you have listened to the end of the podcast, send me a message uh, at mysteriousworldpodcast at gmail.com. Mysteriousworldpodcast at gmail.com. The first person to send a message saying that they listened to the end will win a prize. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but you'll win a prize. Send me a message, mysteriousworldpodcast at gmail.com, and let me know that you actually listened all the way through to the end. Thank you, and have a blessed day.